and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Happy 2021, Ashley. I'm sorry to say that it is so far not going better than 2020. Uh, But, yeah. (laughs) you know what? That doesn't mean that we're going to drag the show down into last year's drama. We're we're, we're on to bigger, better things 2021 has plenty of its own. (laughs) That's right. Uh, How you doing? Uh, I'm okay. Um... Yeah, a little, a little tired, a little um, down on the state of our country, but hanging in there, just trying to cover it. <laughs> it's about all I can do. Yeah, the break from recording the show was nice, except that uh, it coincided with yeah the country falling apart, mm-hmm. um, which we are going to be getting into on today's show. And who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Father Brian Massingale. He is a professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University and the author of the book Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. Um, And we are recording this on Wednesday, January 13th, exactly a week ago, as we referenced before, uh, there was an attack on our nation's capital. Um, And Father Massingale wrote about that for America Magazine. Yeah, in a piece called The Racist Attack on Our Nation's Capital, Father Massingale put into words, I think, what, um, you know, the shock and the horror that a lot of people were experiencing in the moment, but also it did a really powerful and clear way of connecting it to uh, some of this country's legacy of white supremacy um, in a way that helped make sense of what was happening. And so uh, Father Massengale had a lot more to say, and so we get into that with him later in the show. But he did uh, leave us with a drink recommendation. Yes, so this week we are having Johnny Walker Black label with a twist, so. Yes, he as he as he put it, it's uh, a step up for when you need it, for when you need a good drink. It's not, you know, it's not the lowest Johnny Walker, but it's still in the price range of affordability. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, we all need a drink after this week. So yes. cheers. <laughs> Cheers, Zach. All right. Before we get to our conversation with Father Massingale, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. As we have mentioned already, uh, a week ago was the attack on the Capitol. Today is Wednesday. And as we're recording this, we learned that the House of Representatives uh, has voted to impeach the president. Um, so we just wanted to point you towards a couple stories on America's website that that dive into the events of the past week. Yeah, that's right. So one is from the the editors, the editorial board at America, which called for impeaching and convicting the president um, on Monday. Uh, so you can read their argument for that. Uh, the title is impeach period convict period now period uh pretty straightforward what it's calling for and the second is from our colleague father james martin who did a real deep dive he worked on this as soon as wednesday's events happened and just published yesterday um, about how catholic leaders help give rise to violence at the u.s capitol so he's taking a look at you know what what is the role of complicity that the catholic church in the united states has in sort of inspiring or inciting some of the things that we saw on wednesday right and what i think is the most kind of damning part of his report is that, you know, he has receipts. He is he is using people's word. He's just quoting from people and putting it out there and, you know, kind of letting us draw the conclusions, uh, which are pretty uh, alarming for, for Catholics, I would say. That's right. So again, this situation continues to move quickly. And so the best way to like stay on top of what uh, America is doing and making sense of it, especially from a, from a faith perspective, is to hit up americamagazine.org. 
But that wasn't the only thing that happened this week or, or in the past two weeks, uh, despite what it might feel like. So we do have some Vatican news that we want to quickly touch on. Right, Ashley? Yes. On Monday, Pope Francis changed canon law so that women could be officially installed as lectors and acolytes, um, basically the people who read at Mass and serve the altar. Um, and you might be thinking, as I did, wait, haven't women been doing this uh, for years? Because I, I serve as a lector and a Eucharistic minister at my church. Uh, and you would be right. <laughs> yes. But I guess the thing that it probably isn't as clear or familiar is that these are technically considered temporary roles and women really could only perform them in these ministries at the discretion of their local bishop which is why there are places uh around the world and in the united states where women are not allowed to serve in these roles right and so today's change in canon law prevents bishops from choosing to restrict women from these ministries um one like kind of detail that i want to pull out just because these are weird terms acolytes you can be an altar server server and an acolyte, but not all altar servers are acolytes. So like one question that a lot of people had is like, okay, does this mean like there are always now all parishes will allow altar girls? Um, and that's not necessarily the case, but it would be harder for bishops to justify not having altar girls when you have women serving as acolytes and readers. That's right. And so if you are attend a parish where that is currently the policy or you know of one nearby, um, there's probably probably a good chance that a change is coming down the line um it, unless of course you know they're pretending to not hear this rule but it, it might be in your it, you or someone you know's interest to bring this to their attention i guess the question is that that's a one reason it matters but are there other big things happening here well one thing I think it's important to say is like this is not a step towards women's ordination. Um, Pope Francis made that clear in his um in his letter around this announcement that you know he he stands by St. John Paul II's uh, pronouncement that the church does not have the authority to make women's priests. Um, and with this with this uh, change in canon law, what it really does is recognize that there is a clear distinction between non-ordained ministries like lector and act acolyte and ordained ministries like the diaconate and the priesthood. And so we, the church, you know, has the freedom to let women step into these roles because there is that stark line between those um, different kind of ministries. Yeah. So if you're looking for more on this story, you're definitely going to want to check out this week's Inside the Vatican podcast. Colleen and Jerry get into this uh, in a real in-depth way and explain sort of, it, 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 I don't know, changes like this come across as really simple and like, oh, okay, great. Uh, but it's the result of, you know, a lot of different factors and so putting it in context is super important right and i would i just want to add like on a more positive note just you know we've said what this doesn't mean but what it does mean is that you know the church is um in the pope's words giving stability and public recognition to the work that many women are already doing um which you know some might say that's not enough but you know as someone who does that work i i, I welcome the change yeah all right, now stick around for our conversation with Father Brian Massingale. Joining us from Morningside Heights in New York City is Father Brian Massingale. Father Massingale is a professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Massingale. Thank you, Ashley. It's good to be with you. So good to have you here. And hello, Zach, too. I forgot. Don't leave Zach. <laughs> no, thank you. Appreciate <laughs> no, no, no. it. Thank you. And th thanks for joining us. I know it's been um, 
you've had a busy week, particularly with America Media. So we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we really do. Um, speaking of America Media, you wrote a piece for us um, really in the middle of last Wednesday's riots at the Capitol um, as things were unfolding um, in very dramatic fashion. Uh, the piece was titled The Racist Attack on Our Nation's Capital. Um, can you take us back to January 6th? Uh, I assume like the rest of us, you were glued to your television watching these events unfold. Um, what were you thinking? What were you feeling when you saw the Capitol stormed, um, the Confederate battle flag being marched through the halls of Congress? There were a number of emotions that I felt. Um, physically, there was this sense of chill. I, my whole body was chilled. It was like a, a sense of, of horror when you're watching this unfold and this was, you know, you're, you're watching these things and you're seeing things that we've never seen as Americans. And I lived in Washington DC for two years when I was um, pursuing doctoral studies at the Catholic university of America. And I've had occasion to visit Washington any number of times. I've gone, I've been in the Capitol building and I know what the security is like to be in that building and to see and also the sense of history and walking through the halls and to see the kinds of violence and blatant human violation in terms of seeing people pummeling police officers and our representatives huddling in fear. And you're watching this and you're trying to process it all. And, you know, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. I'm, I'm texting my friends as all this is going on. And my text really alternated between OMGs and WTFs, you know, because it's really, and I mean, just being very honest here, because we're watching this and you, you can't, you're trying to make sense of it. And then you realize what's happening, that people who have bought into a delusion, a lie, are now trying to overthrow the government of the United States. And it's not just about discounting votes. I mean, that's that would be bad enough in a democracy. But here they're basically saying that they are against democracy. They're against what we've been told as kids that this that our country stands for. And all of us, you know, as Americans, you know, going through our history books, we've seen pictures of the Capitol. The Capitol building is kind of iconic of what it means to be American. And to see it, you know, virtually being destroyed before our very eyes, I was filled with anger. And a, a friend of mine said, you need to write something because that's kind of what I do. And I said, I'm too angry to write. And he said, but don't you always say that anger is the passion that moves the will to justice? And I said, you're right. And so I had to basically take my computer into my bedroom, you know, away from the TV. And I just started pouring out um, thoughts and reflections in real time. And it's the first time I've ever done that. Usually I'm much more, you know, like professorial, academic. But this time I felt, no, we, we have a right to be angry because anger, I think, is a respectable emotion that helps us to pierce through the fog and to name what's really going on and to name the sense of horror, but also to name the powerful truth that as horrible as this was, it was not entirely surprising. That's kind of become a cliche, I think, in the in the last week is that, you know, people people were shocked, but but not surprised in 
and I guess the thing that really struck me about your piece is this moral clarity that does sort of ring through in a time of crisis. Um, but why do you think so many Americans were so sort of like knocked off their guard um, when, as you say, this is something that probably we should have seen coming? Well, absolutely. And I think that um, speaking as an African-American priest, um, one of the things that we've, you know, I think it's becoming a truism, but I think we need to highlight this, is that had this been a group of African-Americans or Latinos or Muslims who have been for months threatening to march on the Capitol and to shut it down and to say that it's going to be wild and we're going to take our country back, I can guarantee you that there would have been a far more robust and even massive security operation than what we saw on January 6th. And I think the reason why people are shocked, and it goes back to something I discussed in an interview with uh, Father Malone, is that in this country, we are formed to view darker skin as a threat. And so when darker skinned people act up or are violent, it's kind of, that confirms expectations. Whereas we frame white bodies very differently. We give them the benefit of the doubt that these are people who are going to be a little angry, but surely they wouldn't do the, the horrible things that we saw. And I think that's the reason why it was so shocking because of the way in which we frame white bodies, that we don't think that white bodies are capable of being rioters. When we, I always do this to my students when I teach about race relations. I say, when I think of, when you say the word terrorist, what comes to mind? And even though they don't want to admit it, we have a, a picture of someone who's Muslim or Middle Eastern. We don't associate white with terrorism. And that's precisely, I think, the reason why we were so shocked, even though this group had broadcast their plans for months. And even though, especially for persons of color, the cruelty and the threat of violence is something we've seen throughout the presidency of Donald Trump, and yet people have never really wanted to take it seriously. Um, this is a man who, for, if you remember, um, he told the Proud Boys to, you know, stand by. Um, he, at his campaign rallies, um, he approved of acts of violence. And so this theme of approving of violence, of not promising a peaceful transfer of power, these are all things that were telegraphed. You know, these were not surprising. And so when they come up in real color, I think people are shocked that it's actually happening. They, they kind of never want to believe that, this is, that he's capable of doing what he did and that this mob is capable of doing what it did. Yeah. I want to quote one particularly um as, as Zach said, mm -hmm. morally clear line um, from your piece, you said, what we saw today is a clear declaration that many white people would rather live in a white dictatorship than in a multiracial democracy. If democracy means sharing power with people of color, especially black people, then they want no part of it. Um, that's that's very strong. Uh, and I, I, I want to kind of get your thinking behind that um, and why we why. Again, why I think you, you touched on why um, 
maybe we saw we saw the racism in terms of the police's response in that it was you know they had kid gloves on um but what about the racism operating on the on the people actually um storming the capitol well i think it's uh, when you look at the videos of those images the confederate flag has been a symbol of racial hatred um when we also see that white nationalism the belief that the country belongs to white people in a way that it should not and ought not belong to others. This has been a constant refrain, a constant theme running through the last four years. We have a president who declared that I am a nationalist. And by that, he didn't mean that he was someone who puts the interest of the country first. I mean, every American president does to some extent. What he meant is he wanted to put the interest of a particular group of people first. And by that, he meant white Americans. I mean, in his final closing arguments in his campaign rallies, he didn't talk about his stances on life or his anti-abortion stance. He basically was making appeals to white suburbanites that they need to, you know, to guard their suburbs against the, you know, the threat of African-Americans who might want to move in. Um, he always talked about the infestations of invaders coming uh, across our southern border. He talked about S-hole countries. We, we remember that very clearly. Um, this was a, a long, long, long list of appealing to white racial grievance and fear and anxiety. And we looked at the kind of where he want the results that he wanted to challenge. They're all from places where the African-American vote was decisive. And so I think what we've seen throughout the last four years was this growing sentiment among a, a core group of his followers was that this growing unease at the nation's changing demography meant that you know, we don't want that. And they saw in Trump, their standard bearer to kind of hold back this, you know, threat of a changing America. And that's why I said, you know, it's crystal clear here that for the people who are there, they were basically declaring on behalf of not only themselves, but others of like mind, that they do not want a multiracial democracy. One of the things that I'm finding continually disturbing is, you know, for some, you know, shock led to, for, like yourself, this morally clear understanding of what's happening. But for the people on the ground and for a lot of people watching them, they just very quickly went from one lie that this election was stolen to the next lie that, oh, you know, we're shocked by this, but it was Antifa or that it, there was some other thing going on. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there is something really spiritually wrought there. And I don't, and I don't know what the, the answer is. I'm glad you named that because I think that there is um, a deep spiritual emptiness that we saw manifested. Um, some would even call it demonic, but I don't want to go there. I want to say something else. And that is even prior to this point, we saw among a segment of the American population a sense of spiritual emptiness. Um, recall that there were these um, suicides of despair that people talked about, where people felt that because their lives were empty and they saw no, um, no one taking them seriously in American culture, 
Uh, this was primarily among um, white, the white population and among, among white men of a particular social demographic group, um, socioeconomic class, that they took their lives. And I think what, what, what we need to look, in this, look at in this country is that whatever Trump and Trumpism, and I want to talk about Trumpism more than a person, Whatever Trumpism represented, it represented something that gave them a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of validation. And they have latched onto this with a sense of messianic fervor. People have called it a cult, and I don't want to get into the technical technicalities of that, but there is a messianic fervor that is here that this has become their religion. It's become their meaning system. This is what gives them a sense of purpose. And they've latched on to um, the president as being a messianic figure. And he's appealed to that by saying, you know, I alone can fix it. I, am, I alone can, can help you. And it's touched the deep core of inner need that's there. And it, they're going to be faithful to that because without that, then there, there's a vacuum there's an emptiness. And who are they and what are they if they don't have this cause to give their life meaning? Yeah, I agree with you about this desire, this need to fill the vacuum. Um, but, you know, it, you know, they believe in Trump, but they're 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 using the symbols and the often the language of Christianity when they're when they're kind of doing this. Um, and I think it's it's a Christianity that many of us find unrecognizable from what we think of as the message of Jesus Christ. Yeah, even, even more than um, unrecognizable, abhorrent. Yeah. Or to be even more forceful, biblical, it's idolatrous. Right. It's idolatrous. Yeah. So what what is, what is how do, how do Christians um, respond to that? What's your response? This is where I think the Christian community has, um, has fallen short, that we've allowed Christianity, Christian symbols, Christian faith, Christian language to be hijacked in the cause of a human ideology of exclusion and division and derision. And we haven't been forceful enough to to call it out and say, no, that is not Christianity. That is not Christ-like. That is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus and I think for several reasons, Christians have, and I'm going to be specific about Catholic Christians, we've fallen short. I think we've fallen short because um, I hear from many of my uh, white friends, well, you know, my mother or my father, my grandparents, they're really into this guy. And so it's easier just not to talk about it uh, because this way we can kind of, you know, we just don't talk about it so we can all kind of remain friends. And I think that that allows the language of Christianity to be hijacked. And so we don't call it out. We don't say no. I mean, if you're entitled to your belief, fine, but that's not what the Christianity is all about. And here I have to also be honest that I fault many priests and bishops for not being more forceful in their preaching, in their teaching, in their pastoral guidance and saying, you know, there are many things we can agree upon that are Christian, and many things we can say that are against um, our, our Catholic beliefs, but there's a certain ideology that is incompatible, absolutely incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. And I think all too often we as Christians are 
not forceful enough, not willing to be forceful enough to witness the truth to the truth of our, our religion. How do you how do you kind of draw those clear lines about what <laughs> what is Christian and what is not and what we accept and what we don't accept without without I don't know shirking responsibility for the ways that Christianity has become like that in in this country. I, I think the language you were using remind me of the same debate people have like, oh, this is not who we are as a country and people pushing back and being like, no, this is it. This is. So like the same thing with Christianity. It's like, no, this is not what it means <laughs> to be a Christian. But for a lot of people, it has been for a while. Yes. And, and I think that's um, whenever I teach uh, theology at uh, Fordham, I tell them that one of the difficult things we have to face is that Religious faith has been used to justify the most horrendous of human evils and exclusion. It's been used to justify racism, to justify the subordination of women, to justify drawing the lines between the insider and the outsider. However, Christian faith and Christian and people inspired by Christian faith have also been among the foremost witnesses for social transformation and change. And so we're always going to have this clash of Christianities is the way I put it in class. And the, and the ongoing struggle, and this struggle isn't new to us. It was as old as the Old Testament when we had these uh, debates or these rivalries between who was a true prophet of God, who was a false prophet of God. There's always this tension between genuine religion which is always stretching us to expand the boundaries of our compassion and of our inclusion and of our love and a, a form of religion that basically exists to sanctify my particular human group, my particular tribe, my particular interests. And I think the asset test is Jesus. Jesus um, was born a Jew, he's a Jewish faith, but he always expanded his his boundaries beyond a concern just for his type in terms of his use of the parable of the Good Samaritan, of his openness to the Canaanite woman, of his, you know, sitting down with the woman at the well of Samaria. What we see in Jesus is that authentic Christianity is always expounding, expanding the boundaries of who belongs, who matters, who counts. And it's in the stranger. I mean, Matthew 25, you ask for the, the test, how do we know? Matthew 25 says that Jesus is found in the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the stranger, the imprisoned, the despised among us, or as Mother Teresa of Calcutta would always say, it's our Christian conviction that Jesus comes to us in the distressing disguise of the poor. And to me, that is the asset test of Christianity. Who is pushing us to expand our boundaries of who matters and who belongs? I want to ask about some of the people that you're pushing. You mentioned earlier talking to your students and having uncomfortable conversations about race. I'm wondering, what does this process typically look like in your white students in particular? And how would you describe w w what's happening to them in, in, in the process of a of your course or your teaching or, or your or if you're expanding their ba their boundaries or their ideas of what Christianity is supposed to be? Um, it's hard to talk about the typical white student because they're all very different. Um, but when you asked the question, my mind went back to probably the paradigmatic case of a white student uh, who's taking my class on Christian faith and racial justice. 
And he was the head of the Young Republicans group on campus. And I looked at this so when I saw the class list and I saw that he had signed up for the course. And I, my first reaction was, oh, shoot, or something like that. Because I thought, oh, God, this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be fun. And sure enough, for the first part of the semester, his interventions in class were always of the type that he would never directly challenge everything I said, but it would always be enough to sow reasonable doubt into anything I said. And then I was walking with another student across campus, and she said to me, I'm really glad that, let's call him John, I'm really glad that John is in our class because if we only talk to people who agree with us, then how does that change anything? And I thought, wow, out of the mouths of babes. I thought, okay, she's, she's, she, she, she changed my mindset. And so then what I did was I simply said, okay, this is the truth that I know, and so I'm going to present it. And then it, what disturbed me was that he, he became quiet. He fell silent. For about four weeks, he didn't say anything. And so then one day we were talking about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham city jail. He came into class and he said, this is the best reading we've had all semester. And I said, oh, really? Okay. And then he participated in class and it showed that not only had, had he read the text, he actually like believed it, he had absorbed it. And I thought, wow, what changed? And so at the end of the course, he filled out the course evaluation. And one of the questions I asked was, um, what have you learned in this course that confirmed what you knew beforehand? And he wrote down, I'll never forget this, he said, nothing. This course affirmed nothing that I believed beforehand. And then he went on, he said, you may have noticed that I was silent for weeks. And he said, it occurred to me that I needed to listen. And I needed to listen to the pain of the black and brown students in the class. And as I listened, I realized that my world was too small. And then he said, I leave this class still a conservative, still a Republican, but now I see that if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to be concerned about racial justice. I was like, wow. <laughs> Wow. So that process, I, 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 I would describe as conversion. Oh, I think there are absolutely. other people that would. Oh, no, I, that's, a, that's a great. <laughs> no, that is the word. That's what conversion looks like. That's what conversion looks like. And it came about because he was willing to be neighbor to his fellow classmates and his, to his fellow classmates and to listen to them, not for with the intent of proving them wrong, but he was willing to listen and say, okay, what are they saying that I need to hear? And he still holds on to some of his core convictions. He says, I'm still a conservative Republican, but now he says, I see that conservative Republican cannot be more important than my Christianity. And I have to find some way of bringing those two together and to realize that if it comes a choice between my political ideology and my religion, then my religion has got to be primary. And I think that that's the real asset test for conversion in our, in our country, that all too often we've equated a political ideology with a form of religion. 
Or we've, and we've even heard priests say that if you're going to be a good Catholic, then you have to be Republican. That's just, well, one, it's nonsense, but also it's not even what the church teaches. In the compendium of the social doctrine of the, of the church, it's very explicit that while Christians may have political um, um, loyalties and belong to political parties, our political loyalty must always be a critical one and must always be subjected to the light of the gospel, whether we are Democrat, Republican, um, socialist, whatever, that ideology cannot be our ultimate identity or our ultimate frame of reference. Yeah. So the story of your student is gives me hope, but it also tr- it troubles me in some sense when I broaden it to you know, to go more general about how, where do we go from here as a country, right? So we've got this event where, you know, presumably a good majority of the nation was shocked at what happened January 6th and four years of this president, but not everybody's got a whole semester to sit down and learn from Father Massengale. And so I'm left wondering, you know, when you have a lot of people saying, we just need to move on to keep the country unified, where is where is conversion going to happen for us? And I don't know if we have an answer for that right now, but I'm wondering if you have any ideas for what needs to happen. I've been thinking about this a great deal, and I'm going to give a very Catholic response. I think one place we can look as a resource is to look at the structure of the right of penance. And when you look at the structure of the right of penance, it begins with an honest examination of, of, of conscience, not a, an appeal to, you know, cheap grace or cheap reconciliation, like let's just put behind us. No, in a sacrament reconciliation, we understand that right relationship with God and with another is contingent upon honest truth-telling about where we've fallen short. And I think that's one essential thing that we need to do as our country to, to move forward We have to be honest about how did we get here? What contributed to how we got here? Then in the next part in reconciliation in in the right is that we have an act of contrition. And that is we express genuine sorrow over what has happened. We need a, a space in our churches and our public life to lament and to grieve who we have become as a nation, as a people, as a church. And the thing about lament is that no matter which side of the divide you are on, you can grieve over the fact that there is a separation, a gulf, a chasm. And we need to create these spaces in our society and our churches where people can come together and grieve and lament. I'm, I'm inspired by the example in South Africa during the apartheid regime that one of the few places where blacks and whites could come together would be funerals. And those funerals became acts of mourning, not over the passing of a loved one, but also of mourning over the deep separation that existed in the country. And that sense of mourning then gave people the sense of energy to move forward to create a new society. The next thing that happens in the rite of penance is that you're given a penance. You have to take corrective action. And as Catholics, we believe that if we've done something wrong, we have an obligation to repair what's broken. And so it's not a matter of saying, 
oh, I'm sorry. Remember in the old catechism that if you stole something, absolution was contingent upon you returning what you've, what you've stolen. Or if you slandered someone's name, absolution was dependent upon you repairing the, the good name of the person that, whom you slandered. And I think that as a country then, in order to genuinely move forward, we have to engage in acts of repentance. We need to, people need to confess their complicity, either through silence or vocal support. We also need to repair the damage in terms of lost race relations, in terms of what does a just society where people have adequate health care for all, where we have ed- quality, quality education for all, where we have voting access for all. It's not a matter of zero-sum games. It's a matter of, again, broadening the circle of inclusion. And then in the sacrament, that's when we celebrate absolution, or in this case, that's when we proclaim God's mercy has been present throughout the entire process, not just at the end of the process, but God's mercy is that which allows us to even be as truthful as we are in going through this journey. And so when people are saying, let's put this behind us, they're saying, no, 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 no. Our Catholic faith gives, uh, tells us that reconciliation is a process, and it's a process that's contingent upon being radically honest, and then being contrite, and then repairing the damage, and then we can celebrate a reconciling community. Now, that's not an entire answer to your question. I don't know if anyone's have all the wisdom, but I think we as Catholics, we have something we can offer, and I think that that can give us a place to start. Yeah. It's going to be a long, a long road. I don't, I don't think <laughs> we like to think that, you know, come January 20th, <laughs> this will all end, but I don't think so. This is going to take longer than your no, average no. confession. <laughs> well, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Because we didn't get here overnight and so we shouldn't expect it. But the other thing is, I think we also need to, um, we need to talk about hope um, because, we look at the journey, the journey seems so daunting and we're like, we can feel so disheartened. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be a Pollyannish because Christian hope isn't Pollyannish. Christian hope comes out of the resurrection and the resurrection only comes out of human defeat and failure. But the resurrection teaches us that human defeat and failure are not the last words, that the resurrection is about what God can do out of human defeat and out of human failure, that our God has not abandoned us. And we see signs of that even now. Like I'm thinking that even on that horrible day, we saw an African-American policeman act as a decoy to divert the crowd away from the Senate chamber, which was unguarded. He, he looked and he saw the, the, the door was unguarded. And so you, if you see the video, he shoves them to anger them just enough to draw them away from that. I mean, that's a, that's a sign of hope that there are people who are, in, even at, in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that horror, there are people who, whose very humanity was willing to be sacrificial. Also, when I think about it, I think of during this, this terrible COVID pandemic, all of the healthcare workers who are putting themselves in danger to help save others. That's something that's very personal to me because this fall I had a major healthcare emergency and I was hospitalized in ICU for five days. And I saw up close 
the healthcare workers and what they're going through. And one in particular was a night nurse who came to change my IV ports. And we started talking and he started talking about what it was like to be in a New York City hospital at the height of the epidemic this past spring and how he hadn't seen his family for three weeks because he didn't want to bring the disease home to his family and how many of his coworkers got sick and it was a scary time. Yet here he was months later, still caring for the sick. That kind of generosity is real in our country. And yet we don't see it, you know, in living color displayed, you know, because images of violence and destruction, you know, are much more compelling. But there are commonplace stories of heroism and of, and he wouldn't even call himself a hero. He would, he would bristle at that. I mean, my nurse, if he were here, if he were here right now, he would say, I'm not a hero. I'm just doing what I do. And I think that is true. That's what sanctity looks like. That's what it means to be a saint. People who are who do what they do out of a deep love or faith and a faith that they can't even name as faith, but it's real to them. And that gives me hope. It doesn't mean that it won't that will be easy. It doesn't mean there won't be very difficult, tough conversations that we need to have. It doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. But I also believe that we have to have hope because, the be- as I told Father Malone in my interview with him, the best way to predict the future is to help create the future. We are called to be co-creators with God. God is with us. That with what humans break divide and separate, we can, with God's help, also heal, unite, and restore. And I think we need to always hold on to that hope, which is deeply Christian, which doesn't avoid the pain and the terror that's that's real, but also tells us that that's not the ultimate reality. Father Massengale, Thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for, you know, giving us a little bit of hope this week. Uh, I think we needed it, um, and I'm glad you brought up, uh, you know, everyday sanctity because uh, we do have one last question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be, and why? Mm. Okay, someone warned me this question was going to come, <laughs> and I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to give two, okay? Uh, I know you're not supposed to, but it's a male-female, so you got to allow me that. Um, sister Antona Ebel is an African-American sister, and she was one of the sisters, the nuns of Selma. She was one of the first sisters to answer the call of Martin Luther King to march with him in Selma for voting rights. And she was, you know, with, she was one of the, the only African-American sister that was there in her traditional full habit with their black nun shoes and a black and white outfit and veil and everything. And at this is that time when, you know, sisters, nuns didn't do this. And she was challenged on it. And she was interviewed on national TV. And she said, and she was asked, why are you here? And she said, I am here because I am black because I am a nun, because I am Catholic, 
and because I want to bear witness. And throughout her life, she was a constant witness to justice and um, was someone I knew personally. And I just think that um, she's a, a she's someone who's worthy of emulation and a, a great role model. And the other one I would canonize would be um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't think you're you're maybe too young to, re- to remember this, but um, at the turn of the millennium in 2000, um, there was a, an effort to surface like who should we canonize? Who are who are people worthy of emulation? And there was a serious effort to think about well, can we canonize a non-Catholic? And so it didn't go anywhere. But I think that Martin Luther King, even though he wasn't Catholic, is worthy of emulation. And I want to say not only because of his, you know civil rights activism. But remember, he was a reverend. He was, he was, he did what he did because he was a Christian and he wasn't a perfect Christian. I mean, we know now he had extramarital affairs and things like that. And, you know, we don't approve of that behavior, but I think it's important to understand that saints aren't perfect people. And I think we need to, because that way, when we we put saints on a pedestal, then we think, oh my God, I can't possibly like that. I'm, I'm not, you know, I know all my crap that I have going on in my life. I think we need saints who remind us that these are flesh and blood human beings who have limitations and even failures, but who still manage to do great things for God because of their faith. And so those would be my two people I canonize. All right. Well, saints, Ebo and King, uh, pray for us. Uh, Father Brian, thank you so much for all that you do and for taking some time out to talk to us today. Where can uh, people follow your work? Well, thank you. It's uh, I, The reason why I wanted to do this, I, mean, I was glad you you invited me because um, I hear your podcast reaches, you know, the uh, young and hip people that, you know, usually do. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I heard that's how your, your, your tagline, you know, young, hip and lay. Self-described. Okay? Self-described. Yeah, self-described. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so it'd be good to reach a, a group of young, hip, lay Catholics who, frankly, they're not only the future of the church, they are our church right now. So I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of the conversation and to use your platform to, to reach, you know, a segment of the church we often, you know, don't take seriously or engage seriously. Amen. Well, Thank you. And uh, we'll point people to your article that's up on America's site right now um, and your interview with Father Malone as well. Uh, thank you so much and have a great rest yeah. of your week. Hang in there. Yes, and let's pray for our country. We're, we're going to be needing prayers. So let's pray for our country during these very difficult and challenging times. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Massengale. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? So you might have noticed if you're a reader of America's website this week that America launched its new digital subscription program. So if you are looking to support this show, Jesuitical, there are two ways you can do that. Right. One is going over to americamag.org slash subscribe and signing up for our new digital subscription. This will give you unlimited access to all of the wonderful articles that we publish at America Mag. Um, and 
If you want to receive even more content, you know, uh, exclusive swag from Jesuitical, our weekly newsletter, um, and things like our reading group, you can support Jesuitical specifically at patreon.com slash americamedia. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a desolation uh, this week, and I I don't know. It feels sometimes like these desolations just like are really difficult to name or just even just like pin down. I was talking to Father Eric this week, and it was just kind of like lamenting and complaining about a bunch of things. And he's like, well, you definitely sound like someone who's in desolation. Um, but I think just sort of the chaos of everything that's going on right now between this attack, this riot at the Capitol, um, with the pandemic still raging on, um, feeling very ungrounded. And that's manifesting in a number of ways. Like I feeling like I don't have any routines. I, I don't have any energy to pray. I don't have any energy to do other things like work out or do other things that I like. And so what Eric says to me, is like bad news and that I don't, I can't fix the world. The world is still going to be bad uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, but this is why St. Ignatius sort of admonished the Jesuits to like stay on top of their routines. Like he, he always said, get the prayers in, even when you don't feel like doing it. Um, always do the exam no matter what. And so I think that's something I'm going to be trying to do going forward is, you know, right now nothing feels, I guess, particularly fruitful or um, like it's working, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to commit to getting a little bit of exercise in. I'm trying to get it, commit to saying more prayers even when I don't feel like it. And I'm also going to be, I, I mentioned this to my wife because she is basically the only person I'm around all the time now um, because accountability is going to be important because as I think a lot of people know, with the world being super hard and sometimes getting out of bed just feels difficult. Um, having someone to support you is important. It's also why Jesuits live in community. So I'm taking a leaf out of their book and trying to get some accountability there. So that's my uh, desolation this week. Yeah. I, I wish I could bring us up with a <laughs> consolation, uh, but I also have a desolation this week um, that, yeah, like you said, it, it, it was kind of, it's kind of hard to put into coherent words um but you know i i watched the attack on the capitol in real time um i'm from outside of dc um and you know have been to that building have been outside it many more times and i think in in the you know initial 24 hours i was so busy like doing work to cover the events that it didn't really hit me how like sad and angry i was um and that kind of started to set in over the weekend um and I don't know. I feel like listeners of the show probably sense that like I'm kind of the person who wants to like build bridges and try to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, And I don't I am not feeling any of that. I am not feeling anything but kind of like a thirst for revenge against the people who did this. Um, And that is kind of an unfamiliar feeling for me to deal with. Um, I've like tried to think about what it would mean to like be merciful towards the people who did this um and i i'm just really stuck on wanting them to be punished (laughs) um and that's i've i've found that even hard to like pray about just because like i know that's not the final answer but that's where i am um 
And so, yeah, the desolation there is like being stuck in this place of, of anger and because anger can be, a, you know, a, it's a fine emotion to have. And it seems like the events warrant it. Um, but feeling stuck there um, and unable to bring that to God has been kind of where I've been sitting for the last week. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a probably a very relatable feeling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I yeah, I don't I don't know. I I uh, was too feeling too incoherent to talk to Father Sundrup this week, so I didn't get the good Jesuit advice that you got. So that's that's on me. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, but I think sometimes when we're going through these things, like there's a temptation to not want to talk about them yeah. or voice them aloud. And I think that is classic evil spirit stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Eric would take your call. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Even right now off schedule yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> he, and he, he give you some of those doctor's orders that i got mm-hmm. they sound good all right let's get out of here all right jesuitical is produced by maggie van dorn our editor is noah levinson faith formation provided by father eric sundrup you can follow us on twitter at jesuitical show you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash jesuitical please subscribe to us on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review Josh Whittacle is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.